Well, we're starting the final chapter of 1 Peter, chapter 5, and we're going to cover two verses today. So let's turn to 1 Peter, chapter 5. I'm going to read the first four verses, but we will not cover all four. Beginning in verse 1 of 1 Peter 5, The elders who are among you I exhort, this is Peter talking, of course, I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those who entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we look at these first couple verses today that you would just open up our hearts and minds, that we could receive all that you would have for us. Lord, we thank you that you are the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and you do feed your sheep. So we ask you just to feed us today from your word. Feed our spirits. Feed our hearts and our minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Peter starts off this fifth chapter. Of course, the Bible wasn't originally in chapters. It's been broken down into chapters to make it easier for us to follow and to study. But as we begin this fifth chapter, Peter begins with these words, the elders who are among you. Of course, he's writing to a local body of believers somewhere in Asia Minor, we believe, writing from Rome. At the beginning of the book, we saw how he referenced Babylon, and that was kind of a code word in the first century church for Rome. So probably writing from Rome to believers somewhere in Asia Minor. And he refers to the elders who are among you. Now Peter's letter, First and Second Peter, these epistles of Peter, of course written to the entire body of Christ. Uh, but he, now here in this section, he specifically addresses the elders and the local church. The elders were the spiritual leaders of the churches. The qualifications are laid out in Titus 1, 6 through 9, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And these passages describe the elder as one who is a mature Christian with a good reputation and possessing spiritual gifts for teaching, uh, management, and pastoral ministry. Now the only specific reference, interestingly enough, to the ministry of the elders is the description we find in James chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 uh, of elders praying for and anointing a sick person. So that was an important function of the elders, not only to teach and to uh, manage, to pastor, to pray for the sick, and that's something we make available every week up here. But in short, we can say that here Peter is addressing the leaders of the church, whatever title you want to give them. And titles can sometimes be a detriment. I've seen a lot of good people go by the wayside after they receive a title. That's why the Bible warns us not to, uh, again, writing in 1 Timothy, Paul says, don't raise up a novice in a new believer, someone who is not mature in their faith because you're setting them up for failure and you're setting others up to be hurt by that immature person in a position of leadership. And yet we find that so many churches today The minute somebody walks in who seems to exhibit some personality, some charisma, some talent, 
they immediately push them into the ministry. And then uh, when they crash and burn, they just push them aside and grab somebody else. We don't do that here. And we've had many people come and go because they walk in the door and they want to get involved in ministry the first or second week that they're here. There are many churches where you can do that. You can't do that here. Okay? And so uh, we're protecting the flock and we're protecting that person. The elder was to be a mature believer. You can't have a good reputation unless you've been around long enough to build a reputation. Correct? So... He's addressing the elders among the local church there. And he says, I exhort. And according to my good friend Noah Webster, to exhort is to encourage, to embolden, to cheer, to advise. It might sound, if you don't know the definition, exhort might sound a little bit negative, but it's really not. It's a positive thing. You're encouraging, you're emboldening, you're cheering them on, you're advising them. And the primary sense seems to be to excite or to give strength, spirit, or courage. And it's very easy when you are in a position of leadership to become discouraged, uh, to become disheartened, uh, frustrated. There are many uh, feelings and emotions that we experience when we find ourselves in a position of leadership, whether it's in the church or in the workplace, wherever it might be. So Peter is exhorting, he's encouraging them, and we'll see a little bit later in the message here what exactly it is that he's exhorting them about. I exhort, I who am a fellow elder. Now if you remember Peter from the Gospels, he was a little brash, he was bold, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, boldness is good. But you might even say he was a little prideful or arrogant. You know, oh, the, all the others might leave you, but I won't. Oh, actually, Peter, you're the one that's going to deny me three times. Peter was greatly humbled through that whole process. And then he emerges as this powerful evangelist, elder, pastor, apostle. And yet we see now a very humble man. And we see that with really all the New Testament writers. The humility that they exhibited. Because after all, he was one of the original twelve. He was one of the three. Peter, James, and John, the inner circle. One of Jesus' closest friends during those three years of his earthly ministry. And yet, what does he say? I who am a fellow elder. He humbly identifies himself as a fellow elder and equal with these men that he's writing to. Not pulling rank on the leaders of the local church. Now we know in the case of the Apostle Paul, he was in a slightly different position because Paul became an apostle after the fact. The primary requirement for an apostle is you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. You had to have been someone. If you go back to Acts chapter 1 and they're trying to figure out who to replace Judas with, Peter says it has to be someone who's been with the Lord this whole time during his earthly ministry, having witnessed his death and resurrection. And yet Paul wasn't, didn't fit that description. But Paul had his own personal encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, which then qualified him to be an apostle. And yet there were many, of course, in that early church that were critical of Paul, uh, that questioned whether or not he was a genuine apostle. So 
Paul would often open up his letters by saying, Paul, an apostle by the will of God. He felt it necessary to confirm to people that God had actually chosen him to be an apostle. But that's not really prideful or arrogant. It's simply Paul trying to show his credentials, if you will, uh, his um, genuineness as an apostle. But Peter, they all exhibit a tremendous humility in their writings in the New Testament. And so we see Peter coming as he exhorts them, coming from a place of humility. And we'll see next week as we get further into the passage that he exhorts them not to lord it over the people. He says, I who am an elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And truly we know that Peter was there with Jesus. He witnessed his sufferings firsthand. And it reminds me of what John wrote in his first epistle. John chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. Or 1 John 1 beginning in verse 1. That which was from the beginning. If you remember the gospel of John, what are the opening words of the gospel of John? In the beginning, right. And we have it here again. So we go to Genesis, to John, to 1 John. We see this thread. It's pretty cool. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, and he's speaking here of Christ, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, big W. Jesus is the word. He's speaking of Christ. The life was manifested and we have seen and hear witness, bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen, he says it again, and heard, we heard the voice of Christ, we saw him, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So again, we hear these words from the Apostle John, similar to what Peter's telling us, an, an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. And again, as we mentioned, this was the primary qualification for apostleship. You had to be an eyewitness to the death and resurrection of Christ. Peter declares that he's an eyewitness. John declares that he's an eyewitness. So the wonderful thing, as we study the New Testament, we're not just studying second, third, fourth-hand information, speculation. We are receiving the words of men who were eyewitnesses to the miraculous life of Jesus Christ. And they all corroborate one another. We know there are always those who try to say, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions, but it's not. When you look at the, the Bible written over a period of several thousand years, 66 books, what... 40 different authors, and yet the consistency, it couldn't be nothing less than a supernatural book. The literary superiority, the consistency, the corroboration. Pastor Chuck always used to tell us the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. That's why we often cross-reference scriptures in our studies here because the, the scriptures support one another, reinforce one another, and illuminate one another. So he says, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So he's speaking, first of all, the past tense. I was there. I was a witness. And I am also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. 
So he's looking forward now to what he knows in his heart to be true, the return of Christ for his church. Peter was one of the three disciples who went with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration and saw Jesus in his heavenly glory. So that's why Peter can speak confidently of the glory that will be revealed. He's already seen it. But he's one of only three who did. He knows the time will come when every believer will see that glory in all of its fullness. Matthew 17, 1 and 2. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them on a, up on a high mountain by themselves, probably at Caesarea Philippi, up in the northern part of Israel near Tel Dan, not too far from the uh, Syrian and Lebanese borders. Beautiful up there. And he was transfigured before them. The transfiguration. His face shone like the sun. Remember what happened to Moses when he hung out with God up on Mount Sinai? He was glowing, wasn't he? We know that the Bible says God dwells in unapproachable fire. It almost seems like God perhaps is radioactive. And that's why we're going to need brand new, incorruptible, imperishable, immortal bodies to live forever in His presence. These bodies don't handle radioactivity very well. Moses came down from the mountain glowing. He had put a hood over his face so that people wouldn't think, wow, is this guy some kind of alien or what? Jesus shone like the sun. Peter, James, and John saw him in his heavenly glory, which he had set aside when he came down to earth. God momentarily reimposed that glory for those three men to see. And also as Moses and Elijah appeared there with him, no doubt they were glowing. They were in their heavenly glory. And this is just a little preview of what you and I also will be like. It's interesting. I've, I've commented on this before, particularly in a series we did on the return of the Nephilim. We have that available. You can get that as a, as a CD or DVD set. If you're interested in that, it was done several years ago. Very lengthy, in-depth study on the uh, so-called alien invasion uh, that happened during the time of Noah, which was actually fallen angels cohabitating with human women. And how the scriptures, Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. There's ever-increasing evidence as we hear all these reports of alien encounters. They're encounters with demonic entities is what they are. We have a series on that anyway. You can get that. Okay, so if you Google this term, beings of light, you will get millions of hits. And virtually every one of them are about these so-called alien entities that people are interacting with today. Beings of light. The Bible says Satan masquerades as an angel of light, right? But the Bible teaches the true beings of light are the believers. We are the children of the light, the children of the day. We haven't got our full glow on yet, but we will one day when we see Jesus face to face. So he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Peter says, I was there, a witness of his sufferings, 
also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. That glory that was witnessed by only Peter, James, and John. One day the whole world will see him in all of his glory. And those who know him will rejoice. And those who don't know him will know him at that point in time and they will weep and wail. Again, we're reminded of the words of John, the Apostle John in John 1.14. John says, The Word became flesh. The living eternal Word of God, the Son of God, became flesh. Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. You see, John was there on the Mount of Transfiguration too. The glory of, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the men that we have communicating to us the truth of God's Word in the New Testament, these are dynamic, powerful, and yet very humble men. And that's why God was able to use them and make them dynamic and powerful men because they were humble before Him. So Peter's authority now to exhort, to exhort the elders of the local church it's based upon these credentials that he just laid out. You might say, well, who's Peter to tell us how to run things around here? And again, he's encouraging. He's admonishing. This isn't a rebuke. This is an exhort. But his credentials, he's laid them out for us. One, he himself is also an elder. I'm an elder like you guys. We're partners in the ministry, co-laborers in Christ. Secondly, he was an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. He knows wherefore he speaks, or whereof he speaks. Thirdly, he was a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. These are his credentials in, in exhorting these elders. And by the way, partaker means a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. That means that when Christ returns, we will be glorified even as he is glorified. That should be extremely encouraging to us. And you've probably heard me say this before, but sometimes you get up in the morning and we look in the mirror, you don't see a lot of glory. Where's the glory? <laughs> now, maybe you young people see it, but believe me, it will fade. <laughs> Just give it some time. But the glory that we will receive when Christ returns will never fade. It's for eternity. And then God's going to level the playing field. Right now we live in a world that's it's almost like a youth cult. People are so obsessed. In, in ancient times, the elderly were honored. They were exalted. They were looked to for their wisdom and guidance and direction. And actually, you know, the gray hair and the gray beard and all that was looked upon as, as a sign of virtue. Today we live in a youth cult. And so everybody's getting plastic surgery and coloring everything and, you know, going to the gyms seven days a week and trying to, to uh, prop up this dying corpse. <laughs> the good news for us older folks is that when Jesus comes, He's going to level the playing field. We're all going to have the glory! <laughs> Nobody's going to look any older than anybody else. No charge. Be drinking from the river of the water of life, eating from the tree of life. It's going to be glorious. Truly, truly glorious. 1 John 3, 2, John says, Beloved, 
Now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We have a glimpse. We have scriptures that give us a general idea. We have some descriptions of Christ. We know that when he appeared to the apostles after his resurrection, he could enter the room without using the door. We know that when Mary Magdalene encountered him there uh, in the garden, after she went and found the empty tomb, at first she did not recognize him. There was something different about him. He spoke with the two men on the road to Emmaus. They didn't recognize him. Something had changed. Peter, James, and John saw him transfigured. But yet we really don't fully know or understand what we shall be. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, he is revealed, Jesus. Now he's been revealed to you and I in our hearts and in our minds. But the day is coming very soon when he will be revealed to everyone. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's when he will be fully revealed. We will see. Now we also get a glimpse of him in the book of Revelation. Feet like brass, like heated up brass, fiery brass, his eyes like flames of fire, his hair like wool. Again, we get this, begin to get this picture in this image. And yet we don't yet fully know or understand. But the time is coming when we will. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Sounds pretty awesome to me. Romans eight sixteen and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit in us. And that's where we get that expression. When you're born again by the Spirit of God... You know that you know that you know. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit. That's what happens when you're born again. The Spirit of God comes to live inside of you, and you are born again by the Spirit of God, and therefore the Spirit of God bears witness that with our spirit that we are children of God. And that's why whenever uh, we give opportunities for people to, to come and receive Christ, to be saved, to be born again, we, we put it forth like this. If, if, you're, if you're in doubt, if it's, if it's a question mark to you, I don't really know where I stand with God. I, you know, I want to be a child of God. I, I think I am. I, I, I guess I believe in Him. If there's doubt, then you need to erase that doubt. And that doubt is erased by simply making a public profession of faith, coming forward, praying with someone in the prayer team, Acknowledging before God that you are a sinner, confessing your sins, repenting, that means to, to make that decision, that determination that you're going to turn from a life of sin and follow Christ, inviting Him to come into your life, receiving the price that's been paid for your sins, the shed blood of Christ, being washed, having your sins washed away by the blood of Christ, and having the Spirit of God come to live inside of you. You need to make that decisive determinative step and then you're born again by the Spirit of God and you don't have to go through life wondering, hoping, doubting, questioning. And I, before I made this distinction, that one of the big distinctions in my mind between a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and simply being a religious person 
all of the religious groups out there put their followers in a place where they never really know for sure. With the Jehovah's Witnesses, there's only 144,000 that get to go to heaven. I don't like those odds. <laughs> Forget that noise. I like a faith that includes everyone. And that's what God does. For God so loved the world. Christ died for all, not just for a select few. Uh, with the Roman church, there's all kinds of, you know, little nuances. There's purgatory, there's mortal sins, venial sins. It doesn't exactly instill a lot of confidence in its followers. It's a faith based upon fear, intimidation, doubt. I don't... I'm sorry, I'd, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just telling it like it is. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross so that people could hope that maybe they might be saved. He didn't go through all that, so you'd go through your life wondering, hoping, gee, I hope I'm saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what the Bible says. The Mormons, you've got to get the uh, sacred anointed underwear. You've got to go through all the secret rituals, be married in the temple for time and eternity so that you can create a bunch of spirit children and populate your own planet. And if you like that mythology, I can recommend the works of Ray Bradbury. How many of you remember Ray Bradbury? Great sci-fi writer. Fahrenheit 451, so on and so forth. C.S. Lewis, Christian writer, wrote a great uh, science fiction trilogy, uh, Out of the Silent Planet. Uh, I don't remember the other titles. Off, and then, of course, The Chronicles of Narnia. In fact, I would recommend those over the Book of Mormon any day. Okay. Gee, is he criticizing the Mormon church? Yes, to be quite honest. Not the people in it. Here, this is a crazy thing. Whenever, for example, our president talks about countries being <laughs> outhouse countries, <laughs> for example. Well, then the, the liberals and the left-wing media love to spin that, that he's criticizing the people from those countries. No, he's not. He's criticizing the system. He's criticizing all the elements that go into making a country a third-world country as opposed to a first-world country. And I'll tell you the number one ingredient is Jesus. Because if you look at the history of these nations, they were idol-worshipping pagan nations. Western civilization became Western civilization because it embraced Christianity. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Why is Western civilization now crumbling? Because Western civilization is systematically eliminating and rejecting God. And if this were to go on long enough, this would also be an outhouse nation. Because that's what happens when any nation rejects God. But when I talk about the faulty doctrine of the Roman church, for example, the Mormon church, I'm not saying I hate Mormons or I hate Catholics or they're bad people. No. God loves them. Jesus died for them. What I'm criticizing is the false theology, the false system. Get it?
Why can't people use their brains anymore? What do we learn from the scriptures? That God wants us to hate sin, but love the sinner. Get it? But yet, if I talk about what the Bible has to say, for example, homosexuality, abortion. I'm hating women who've had abortions. No, I'm not. I love them. God loves them. They've been ripped off. I don't hate homosexuals. I'm always friendly to them when I encounter them. I mean, you know, when I, I hate to say it, but oftentimes it's pretty obvious. In fact, I used to get ribbed about it. So I used to go down to Buffalo Exchange on Central there. I like to go down there and get some of their used clothes and stuff like that. And they had a number of um, gay guys working there. And uh, they were always very friendly to me. I was friendly to them. And so I got razzed about that. Maybe by my wife, perhaps. <laughs> Whoever it was that went with, with me to Buffalo Exchange, they go, boy, those guys sure like you. And I'm, I, that's, I'm okay with that. I want them to like me, but I'm not going to compromise the truth of God's Word to get them to like me. But I'm, when I talk about what the Bible says, see, it doesn't matter what I think. I personally can't even process, comprehend in my own mind how someone could be moved into that persuasion. It just doesn't compute with me. I don't hate them. I love them. I hate the sin that's destroying them. God hates that sin that's destroying them. Why can't people figure this stuff out? Is this rocket science? It's not rocket science. But our society, our culture, has become so dumbed down and brainwashed, they can't figure out. Wait a minute. He's not criticizing the people. He's criticizing the system that put them in this position. Am I making sense? We need to apply this kind of rationality, reason, and logic in every area of our lives because everybody in our world now is so easily offended and to use perhaps a little softer term, hiney hurt, (laughs) that if you... If you say something that they don't like, then you're a hater. We really have entered the realm of the thought police where everything we say and think is scrutinized. It's exactly the opposite of what our founding fathers fought to deliver to us and what made this nation great. And it doesn't, it doesn't stop outside the church, folks. It comes right into the church and tries to tell us what we can or cannot think and believe and say about God and Jesus Christ and His Word. Do you get that? Once again, delving into the realm that I dare not delve. I like that. Delving into the realm that I dare not delve. I like that. Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So if you're here today and you can't say that, well, I'm not quite getting that message, then I want to invite you to come today after the end of the service and pray to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if children, children of God, then heirs, the children of the heirs of the Father, right? If there's an inheritance to be handed down, 
It goes to the kids. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him. That's the part that most believers like to skip over. We don't, do we have to talk about that part? Yeah. If we suffer with Him in this life, as Peter was talking about chapter 4, that we may also be glorified together. See, the Scriptures don't leave us hanging, leave us high and dry and say, well, all right, this is all about suffering, so you might as well get used to it. No, there is some suffering, but in the end, there's glorification, there's reward, there's an inheritance. If we're willing to do the hard work here and now, then we get to reap the benefits for eternity. Romans 8.30 Moreover, whom He predestined, He, being any one of us here today, if God predestined you, He chose you before the foundations of the earth because He knew that you would choose Him. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's justification. Amazing, isn't it? Totally, we do not deserve it. That's God's grace. Getting what we don't deserve. Justified. With whom he just and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And you say, well, wait a minute. You just told me when I look in the mirror, I don't see the glory. Yeah, but see, God operates outside the realm of space and time. As far as he's concerned, the glorification is already done. It's a done deal. The eternal life is a done deal. See, we're still operating within the realm of space and time, so we have to go through this process, which involves, for most, physical death, and then we are translated into eternity, into the presence of God. But as far as God's concerned, the glorification has already taken place. The knowledge of this, the understanding of this, should hopefully elevate us to a higher level of life here and now, in Christ as we realize the position that we have in Christ. The Bible says we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So should we choose to believe that and walk in that, that means we always have the opportunity to view every situation from the heavenly vantage point, which was, is much better than down here. Get it? Unfortunately, a lot of the time we don't do that, do we? Instead of holding on to that position that we have in Christ, seated in heavenly places, looking at things from the heavenly perspective, we kind of get down in the dirt, so to speak. But the more we can do that, the more we can grab a hold of that, understand that, believe in that, walk in that, the better our lives will be. Okay, here comes the exhortation. The beginning of it, anyway. The first part. Verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. So, as he's exhorting these elders, he's telling them your number one responsibility as an elder is to be a shepherd to God's flock. Psalm 23 gives us some great insight into what a good shepherd looks like. Psalm of David, beautiful psalm, fantastic psalm, one that we all know. The Lord is my shepherd, 
I shall not want. I shall not lack. God has promised to meet all of our needs, to provide for us, to take care of us. There's a difference between all the things that I'd like to have and all the things that I truly need. And we live in a very consuming society today, a very pleasure-oriented, self-gratification society. So when we read this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It doesn't mean that every one of your little wants and desires is going to be provided. But God promises to provide those things that are essential for life. Not just um, physically, but spiritually, emotionally. The Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. That doesn't just mean physical food. Because spiritual sustenance is arguably even more important than physical sustenance. Give us this day our daily bread means, Lord, give us all that we need for this day, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. And I believe that's what David meant when he wrote this. I shall not want, spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because our natural tendency is not to rest in the Lord, right? Not to chill out. Our natural tendency is to get all stressed out, right? He makes me lie down. The Lord, and again, as Pastor Chuck pointed out in the little booklet that I read from a moment ago, this idea that it's always God's will that you be healed from every illness instantly, and if you're not, it's because you have a lack of faith. How many of you have ever heard of Catherine Marshall? Wow, guys. See? <laughs> Today, everybody's reading garbage by people like Rick Warren and Joel Osteen. Crap. Oh, there you go. How's that a nice vulgar word for church on a Sunday morning? Jesus calling. How about some C.S. Lewis? How about some Corey Ten Boom? How about some Catherine Marshall? How about some books by true believers? Who knew God. Man, guys, Catherine Marshall, she was the wife of Peter Marshall, the Scottish Presbyterian minister who was the, the chaplain to the U.S. Senate. Powerful, powerful woman of God, flat on her back for three years, sick, and turned that into these incredible books that speak to the heart. See, there's a direct parallel today between the church and the secular world. The people in the secular world are totally illiterate when it comes to the truth of history, to the truth of God, but it's not much different in the church. I'm not, I'm not knocking you guys. I'm not judging you. I'm not criticizing you. Probably nobody ever told you about Catherine Marshall. But if you like to read... There's some great books that were written before this stupid century we're living in now. Let me tell you that. And you can go back farther. You can go back to Charles Spurgeon and all the other great men and women of faith down through the centuries. The newer the book, the less likely it is to have any value. Other than people like Pastor Chuck. People who have stuck with the truth of God's Word. Maybe not... Pastor Chuck may not be a writer on the caliber of some of these people that I've mentioned, but certainly tremendous and valuable insights into the truth of God's Word and the truth of life in Christ. And that word I used a moment ago, I mean it. Just in case you're wondering. 
I didn't say it for dramatic effect. I'm literally describing this stuff as it is. I won't say it again. You can remember. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. And even to quote from one of our, I guess you would say, sister churches who was challenged on why they were selling some of this material, their answer was because it sells. How does that make you feel? I mean, people go into business to make money, right? I don't fault somebody. They have a Christian bookstore and they want to keep the doors open. They have to pay their bills and pay their employees. But to justify selling garbage because it sells, as a Christian, I have a problem with that. You might even say some of it's Christian pornography. So much for restraint. Every week I try to psych myself into being restrained. You see, it's not working very well. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. The number one responsibility. Where were we in the, uh, the Psalm 23? He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. The waters of this life are tumultuous, aren't they? There's turmoil. There's churning. You know, if you've ever been out into choppy seas and dangerous waters. But Christ leads us beside the still waters. And so that's also the responsibility of the elder, the shepherd. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And therefore, if, as a shepherd, if I'm going to lead you in the paths of righteousness for his namesake, I can't compromise, can I? What if I start telling you, yeah, it's okay to sleep with someone you're not married to. That's okay. God understands. You have urges. You have desires. God made you that way. Is that leading you in the paths of righteousness? Well, you know, marijuana is legal now, folks, so toke up, believers. How about some holy smoke? Is that leading you in the ways of righteousness? I think not. And yet you can find churches like that. They're not that hard to find these days. But my responsibility is to lead you in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Because when we don't walk in righteousness, we bring shame upon the name of the Lord. And that's not why we're here. For yes, though I, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Does it feel that way sometimes? Man, things get rough in this life sometimes, don't they? And sometimes, honestly, you, you feel like you are in the valley of the shadow of death. And sometimes that's literal because you've got some kind of a potentially terminal illness or something. But though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. The shepherd protects his sheep with his rod or club, which was used to fight off wild beasts. And he guides straying sheep with his staff or crook. Five, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Charles Ryrie, a commentator that I do respect, says in his most beautiful song of trust, David pictures the Lord as the great shepherd who provides for and protects his sheep, verses 1 through 4. And as the gracious host who protects and provides abundantly 
for his guests, verses 5 through 6. The figure of a shepherd depicts the Lord as guide, protector, and constant companion. Obviously, no earthly shepherd, elder, could ever be as good a shepherd as Jesus. But the goal of everyone who finds themselves in the position of leadership in the local church should aspire to be as much like the good shepherd as possible. John ten seven through 15, Jesus talks about the fact that he is the good shepherd. Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Jesus is many things. John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to, to the Father but by me. So he's the doorway. He's the entry point into a personal relationship with God. But then it goes beyond that. All whoever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone here enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy, to rip you off. I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. So he's both the doorway and he is also the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, somebody who's only in it for the money, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. And I would say that even goes to the extent that the hireling flees not necessarily by leaving the building like Elvis, but by fleeing from sound doctrine, sound teaching, fleeing from the truth of God's word and embracing all the liberalism that's creeping into the church, the great apostasy, the great of falling away. If a shepherd flees from the truth, then it has the same effect. He might still be there in the pulpit, But if he's fleeing from the truth, he's not protecting the sheep, is he? He's letting the wolves come in and ravage the flock with all their false doctrines, their false teachings, and their deceptions. He's fleeing from the potential criticism that comes from standing firm for the truth. He's fleeing from the potential fallout from saying that Rick Warren and Joel Joel Osteen write books that are full of You know what? I'm not fleeing from that. You might flee from me, but I will not flee from God and I will not flee from protecting the flock. And I find it amazing that when people like me, I'm not the only one that does this, by the way. There are other pastors, shepherds out there that also have the fortitude to stand up and say these things. I'm not the lone ranger here. I'm not trying to portray myself as the only one, the great martyr of the church. There's others. In fact, they're signaling me right now. (laughs) I'll never cease to be amazed at how people are so quick and ready to defend people who depart from the truth 
and come against those who stand for it. Again, the direct parallel between the secular world and the church world, where everything gets flipped around and turned around. The good guys become the bad guys. The bad guys become the good guys. You understand what I'm saying? I'm just trying to help you stimulate your brains to be rational, to be logic, to use logical, to use common sense, and not just fall under the spell of the great deception. In fact, Chuck Missler, how many of you have heard of Chuck Missler? At least you've heard of Chuck Missler. <laughs> now you need to find out about Catherine Marshall. See, I'm promoting a woman. I'm not a... Is it misogynist? Is that the term? I guess. I'm not a misogynist. I'm not a male chauvinist. I'm not any of those things. Corey Ten Boom, Catherine Marshall, some of the books that have impacted my life the most have been written by women. We're down in John 10. Okay, let's keep reading. A hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and have known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So we see here in the scriptures some very descriptive language of what the good shepherd looks like. Peter says to the elders, he's exhorting them, encouraging them, admonishing them, trying to motivate them. Shepherd the flock which is among you. Serving as overseers. Now this is another interesting thing about the kingdom of God and how it differs from the world in God's kingdom the leader the elder the overseer is actually the servant of all in the world they're the big shot right boss everybody around push everybody around take home the big paycheck the CEO you know the corporate tycoons and so forth I'm not sure again I'm, I can't remember any time in my life than any other president has donated their salary back. But does he get any credit for it? Most people run for political office and get elected to political office so they can get rich. Did you know that? It's amazing how many of these people come into office with no money and leave wealthy. Bill and Hillary come to mind. Barack Obama comes to mind. The current president was already wealthy and doesn't need our money. Isn't that amazing? No credit. Can you believe that? He's up there promoting Donald Trump. <laughs> but if I promoted some slimy, liberal, pro-abortion, pro-gay politician, everybody would love me. That ain't going to happen. <laughs> Not you. Yeah, but I could have a bigger congregation. <laughs> like Rick Warren. Joel Osteen. Okay. I'm really down on those guys today, aren't I? Well, hey, that, the price of fame. Subject James says, Be ye not many teachers, knowing you shall incur a stricter judgment. So, I hate to tell you, but the more public you are, 
the more fair game you are. And that goes for me too. I'm not a big shot, not famous, but I am on the internet and TV and all that. I got plenty of people watching who can come after me if they choose to do so. In God's kingdom, the leader, elder, overseer is actually the servant of all. Mark 9.35 And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If someone desires to be first, there's plenty of people out there like that, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Serving as overseers, which means you're going to be a servant leader if you're going to be like Jesus. You're not going to lord it over people. Not by compulsion, but willingly. No one should ever become a leader in the church due to peer pressure or pressure from other leadership. Serving God is something that must come from the heart. Much damage has been done both by those who lead and those under that leadership when compulsion is the motivation. Pressure. You need to do this. You have to do this. We're counting on you. Now wait for God to speak to that person's heart. God will raise them up in His own timing, according to His own plan and purpose. And not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Sadly, there are quite a number of people who view the ministry as the easy way to a fast buck. In fact, I remember years ago, somebody I told him I was a pastor. And he goes, oh man, that's a pretty good gig, huh? Really? You think so? Well, maybe for the select few who are in it for the money, who see it as a means to, to gain, for dishonest gain. But, and for those with impure motives, this can be true. We've seen it. We've witnessed it in our time, perhaps like no other time in human history, because of the accessibility and availability of multiple media platforms. There's some slicksters out there who have really turned a lot of fast bucks. If your motives are impure it is possible to manipulate and use the ministry of God for dishonest gain. But ultimately, that is also destructive to both the shepherd and the sheep. We've seen many fall. We've seen many rise. We've seen many fall. 1 Timothy 6.5 Useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself, and sadly millions are drawn to them, Paul tells Timothy, withdraw yourself from these. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Our contentment is not in the things of this world, it's in Christ. Titus 1, 10 and 11. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, the Judaizers who were following Paul around, telling these poor Gentiles they had to get circumcised and follow the Mosaic law if they truly wanted to be saved whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Which book is someone more likely to buy? Now, in this generation, in this day and age, 50 years ago, it was Tortured for Christ, Richard Wormbrand, another book that touched my heart as a young believer. And so many of the writings of these people were about the sufferings that we endure in Christ, but the glorious victory that we gain as we go through them, trusting in God through the process. It's a whole different world today. It's changed in a half a century. Now, you write a book about those kind of things, nobody will buy it. You want to make money, you write a Jesus Calling. You want to make money, you write a book, what is it, Your Best Life Now? I ain't buying that book. 
if this is my best life now, forget it. My best life is when I see Jesus face to face and live with Him forever. That's my best life. What a crock! What a crock. I can't hardly contain myself, folks. And I was there again in the days of the Jesus Movement, Calvary Chapel, other churches that I interacted with in the traveling music ministry. And many of the young men and women, but of course, within the Calvary Chapel system, we don't ordain women as pastors. We only ordain men because that's what the Bible says. Again, it's not popular. We must be sexist, misogynist, fascist pigs. We're almost one of the last groups that does not ordain women to be pastors. And if it was in the Bible, we'd do it, but it's not. So ladies, we love you, but it's it's not in the Scriptures. So when I refer to the young men, there were many young men who were raised up to be pastors in the early days of Calvary Chapel. Look in the near future for some Calvary Chapel somewhere to ordain a woman, if they haven't already. It may have happened. But in the early days, young men who were raised up to pastor literally worked for peanuts because their greatest desire was to serve as overseers to shepherd the flock of God. In fact, we never considered asking, how much does this position pay? We wanted to serve God so bad, we'd take whatever we were given. But I have a pastor friend who sometime back told me, he was bringing in guys and interviewing them for a worship leader position in his church. Guys that had gone through a, quote, school of ministry, one of the, one of the Calvaries. And he said, he, he gave up after a while because he, like me, was also a worship leader capable of leading his own worship. He wanted to have somebody else to turn it over to. So he started interviewing guys for worship leaders. He said the first question out of every one of their mouths was, how much does it pay? Hirelings in the making, my friends. Hirelings in the making. Philippians 3, 7 and 8. This is our last scripture. We'll close. What things were gained to me, Paul writes, I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Paul was not only a Jew, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a rabbi. And can you imagine what happened to him within the Jewish community when he became a follower of Christ? Not just a follower of Christ, but the apostle to the Gentiles. They lost families. They lost livelihoods. They lost possessions. They were outcasts. They were counted as dead. Paul says, I've suffered the loss of all things. When Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, the first words out of Paul's mouth were not, how much does it pay? He paid everything to follow Christ. And so we'll continue with Peter's exhortation to the elders. And then also he goes on the next part, to the younger people. We'll get to that next week. Let's stand and let's pray. Father God, again, as always, we thank you for the power of, of your Holy Spirit and the power of your word. We thank you, God, that your spirit and your word have the power to change hearts, to transform lives, to change lives and transform our minds, to change our way of thinking, 
to help us to be rational and logical and reasonable. Lord, we'd rather have you wash our brain than to be brainwashed by this world. We ask you to cleanse our hearts and minds, renew us, renew a right spirit within us. And Lord, help us to pursue the truth with all that is within us. And Lord, in some fashion, we might say that everyone here today is a shepherd, whether it be people in our own families, perhaps people that we work with. Lord, anybody that might look to us as an example of Jesus Christ. So Lord, we know this message can apply to more than just those who may have a position in the local church. I pray for each one that you'd help us, Lord, to, not, to be faithful shepherds, faithful overseers of our church, of our neighborhood, our family, our community, our workplace, our schools, that we would not flee, but we would stand and fight the good fight of faith no matter what the cost. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord. Help us to be faithful to you. And Lord, for anyone today that might not know you, they might not have that inner witness where they can say, I know that I know that I know that I'm saved. I pray that they would come today and pray that prayer of faith and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Lord, for any who do need healing, we know that you do heal, not always. And Lord, it's in your own timing according to your own plan and purpose. But you've encouraged us in your word to have hands laid upon us, to anoint with oil, to pray for healing. Lord, not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally, mentally. So, Lord, whatever's going on here today, you know every heart. And we pray that all those who are in need of prayer would come and receive the ministry that's available through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.